study over the Gospel of Mark today, and we're going to be in chapter 7. We're not covering that many verses, we're just covering verses 24 through 30, so if you have your Bibles, you'll turn there and you'll see we're about to study another miracle of Jesus. And you hear me harp on this all the time. When we're studying a miracle in, in, in the New Testament, miracles are like signs, they're meant to be read. They teach us things. When we're studying about these miracles of Jesus, they teach us something about who Jesus is. They teach us something about our salvation and, and how to live in this world. And so none of these miracles are done all willy-nilly. These miracles are very intentional in the life of Jesus. In today's miracle, we are learning a ton of information in just such a small moment. Now, when you get to chapter 7, Something that I also want to remind us of is just the shock factor that would have existed in this chapter. Okay, so for, for many of us, you, you may have grown up in church. You have studied through the gospel several times. You've heard these stories in church and, and Sunday school time and time again. We have the tendency to grow a little numb to some of these moments. And we, we lose some of the shock factor that would exist to especially a first century convert or a first century Jewish person reading this information, when you got to chapter 7, it would, it, it's, it's already getting progressively uh, shocking as you read through the gospel, but chapter 7, it would just blow your mind. I mean, Jesus has this interaction with the scribes and the Pharisees that they are criticizing Jesus and his disciples for not washing their hands appropriately. And so remember, the scribes and the Pharisees, they had all of these oral traditions that were extra rules that they added to God's word. And they would travel around Israel enforcing all of these rules. And so they, would, they even came up to Jesus and his disciples and said, hey, you're not following the rules. You're not doing this right. You didn't even wash your hands right. What's wrong with you? And so this accusation would have been something shocking to read. But then what Jesus says in a rebuttal to them would have just blown their minds. Nothing outside of a person defiles a person. You're all, work, you're all wrapped up in these rules thinking that you're, you're preventing yourself from becoming defiled. But what defiles you comes from inside of you, not from the outside. This would have just disassembled, dismantled so much of what these people hoped in. And so it just would have been just the magnitude of that teaching alone would have just blown their minds. And so the people, and another thing that was shocking is that the people that you would have thought would have been able to identify the Messiah when he, re, when he arrived are the people that miss it. The, the, the scribes and the Pharisees, they know the Old Testament law. They, they have this memorized, and then in addition to the 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 Torah, they got all these extra rules memorized. You would think if of all the people that should have been able to identify the Messiah when he arrived, it would be them. But they miss it. They miss it. And then today, we're studying this moment in which someone who you would expect to especially miss the Messiah is the person who identifies Jesus as their hope and salvation. And so this is just, this is how disorienting the gospel would have uh, been to the ears of a first century person reading the gospel. So I, I don't want us to miss that. I want us to feel the, the magnitude of how, sh how shocking some of these conversations would have been. 
And so here Jesus is, is about to be confronted not by the religious elite, but by someone who wasn't even Jewish at all. He's about to be confronted by not only someone who wasn't Jewish, remember someone who is a non-Jew is a Gentile, that's, that's the biblical lingo for someone who's not Jewish, that makes all of us Gentiles. And so he's, he, he's about to interact with a Gentile, it's not just a Gentile, it's a mixture of Gentiles, ethnically, that we're going to see, and it's a female. And so he, he has this interaction with the, the, the prominent Jews, and he uh, puts them in their place and has this shocking teaching, and now he's about ready to have a conversation with a pagan, a pagan female, and she is about to seemingly best him in the argument. It's incredible. It's incredible. And so this is where we're at. This is the, the Syrophoenician woman who comes to Jesus looking to, to have her daughter healed uh, from a demonic oppression that is taking part in her life. And so here are three things I want us to be on the lookout for as we're walking through this text. Because I think there's three major things that you and I need to pay attention to. One is that this moment is informing us that the, the kingdom that Jesus is ushering in, it's not only coming for the Jews, it's coming for the Gentiles. Hallelujah, that's good news for us. That's good, really good news for us. It's, this moment is informing us, and as well as the first century readers who would have picked this up, his salvation is coming not only for the Jews, but for the Gentiles. However, the second thing I want us to see is that even though it is coming for the Gentiles as well as the Jews, the Jews come first. The, the Jews take priority at, at, in, the, in the delivery of this gospel message. Now, that only makes sense. They were the ones anticipating the Messiah. All right, but we're going to learn, we're going to talk a little bit about why that is and what it means. And then the third thing I want us to look at today or look out for as we're reading this text the faith of this woman is described by Jesus as great. Now, we don't see that in Mark's text. We see that in Matthew's text. There's this moment in which Jesus is like, oh, great is your faith. So this Syrophoenician woman we're about to study about not only has faith, she has great faith. I, I, I don't just want faith. I want great faith. What is it about this woman's faith that makes it so great, so grand? Don't you want to have great faith? Pay attention to this woman. She's about to school you in what great faith looks like. Let's start at verse 24. We're just going to just start with that one verse. This is the Syrophoenician woman's faith. That's the title of the, of the paragraph we're about to study. Verse 24 says, And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. Okay, now we remember where we left off. This is nearing the peak of popularity for Jesus' ministry. Everywhere in Israel, everybody knows all about Jesus. Wherever he goes, the crowds follow. The crowds are anticipating where he's going to be, and they get there first so they can wait on him. And so they can see more miracles and, and hear him preach. I mean, there, there's just like mass hysteria wherever Jesus goes. It, the crowds are so big, they're dangerous whenever they get there. We talked about this as we worked through Mark's gospel. This is what he wants us to know. And, and so Jesus, as we've also seen, 
from time to time just needs to get away. He just needs a break. And so when he desires to take a break from the crowds, what's he do? He gets away from heavy Jewish populations. He gets, he gets away to places where it's either desolate or there's mainly Gentiles. And so that's why he's, he's taking uh, the, the path over here to Tyre and Sidon, because that is a predominantly pagan area. There are Gentiles there, not so much Jews there, but it doesn't matter. Because by this point in time, even the Gentiles know about Jesus. And so Tyre and Sidon, if you look at our map we've been referring to through this entire series, northern Israel is that region called Galilee. And Tyre and Sidon are at the very, very top northwest point of that map. And uh, they're about 20 miles apart. But Tyre and Sidon are always referred to together because when you would do business in Tyre and Sidon, it would always be business at Tyre and Sidon, both of them. And so they were closely connected, a lot of business connections there. But this was a notoriously pagan area. And there was, some, there was even some animosity between the Jews and people who lived in Tyre and Sidon. And it's because they had a history of bad blood. Literally, a history of bad blood. If you read back in the Old Testament, maybe you remember a king named King Ahab. And the, the, here's how the Bible describes King Ahab in 1 Kings 16.30. This is the, the king of the, nor, of the northern region of Israel at that point in time. He did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. And so when the, when the Bible talks about King Ahab, it says this, is, this guy was the worst king. He was awful. Of all the kings that Israel had gone through by this point in time, he was the worst. He did, he did more awful things than anyone before him. And he was notoriously known for one bad thing that he did. He, and, and you've heard of his wife. He married Jezebel. We know if you, if you don't remember King Ahab, you probably remember even the name Jezebel. Well, Jezebel was from Sidon. She was Sidonian. I think that's literally what, how you would refer to them. And so Jezebel, people remember her, and they, they can't stand Jezebel. She's the one that talked King Ahab into, into um, participating in Baal worship or Baal, depending on how you refer to that false god. Not only did she convince King Ahab to worship Baal, she convinced King Ahab to bring Baal worship into Israel and teach it to people. That is why King Ahab went down in, in Israeli history as the worst king ever. He brought in false gods to be worshipped by God's people. It was terrible. That Jezebel, it's her fault. Isn't it funny how even today we'll have that reference in movies and things like that? And people will refer to women, oh, that, she's a Jezebel, right? And you think 2,000 years later, here we are, we're still using that, that term Jezebel to describe a woman who leads a, a man astray. Think of that term then. So that animosity had, had carried into New Testament times. You're going to Tyre and Sidon. What are you doing there? That's where Jezebel's from. The, the, those people there are from her ilk. Gross. What business would you do there? Well, Jesus is like, I'm going there because Jews don't like it there. I'm getting a break from Jews right now. I'm getting away from the crowds. I'm going there to hide. And when he gets there, he interacts with people. 
from Tyre and Sidon. Not only does he interact with people, again, he's interacting with a woman from Tyre and Sidon. Hopefully not a woman like Jezebel. That, these are the things that would go through someone's mind in the first century as they're reading this moment. So again, I don't want us to, to forget that. I want us to feel, put yourself, it, it's so important when you read scripture, we tend to read everything through our cultural lens. And so I work really hard during the week as I prep. I want to understand the culture in that time so that we don't taint the reading of God's word with our cultural lens. I want to understand what's happening in their culture. And that's really important today because this is a tough text. All right? His, this moment in Tyre and Sidon is about ready to take a left turn. Let's read verses 25 and 26. Pay attention to the details here. But immediately, a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth. And she begged him to cast out the demon, or cast the demon out of her daughter. Okay, so his reputation preceded him again. He gets there to Tyre and Sidon. This woman hears that he's in the neighborhood. Jesus, this is the guy who casts out demons. This is the guy who heals sickness and disease. This, this is the guy who is doing miracles. I, I, he, I'm desperate. She's desperate for her daughter. Her daughter's being, her little daughter is being oppressed by a demon and she's looking for help, for help. And so Mark makes sure that we understand her gender and her race, her ethnicity. So it's a, this is a woman, and this is a Gentile woman. She's Syrophoenician. Now, isn't it interesting that even in our day and age, even in our day and age, gender and ethnicity play a role in how people interact with one another? Like it or not, those are still the facts. Back in this day and age, boy, they were even bigger factors. Way, way, way bigger factors in this day and age. She was Syrophoenician. She was, that, that tells us that she was Syrian and Phoenician. This is not only a, a pagan that Jesus is interacting with, not only a, a Gentile that he's interacting with, this is like a mixture of, of different pagan ethnicities. So she's like super ultra mega Gentile. That's basically what Mark's trying to convey to his readers. If you're reading in Matthew's account, which again, Matthew's account is in chapter 15, he just describes her as a Canaanite. Because remember, people would have thought of the Old Testament around King Ahab and Jezebel that, that day and age. Jezebel is uh, Sidonian again. Uh, those, th those people were Canaanites. That's Old Testament lingo more or less for pagans. She's a Canaanite woman. And so again, don't forget the context of this chapter. How did it start? It's all about these scribes and Pharisees talking about what it means to be defiled. It's all about these scribes and Pharisees talking about what it means to be unclean. They're worried about being unclean, unfit to worship God. And yet Jesus just tells them how unfit and unclean they actually are from the inside out. Well, now he's in a pagan land with a, a, this Gentile woman. It's a mixture of different Gentile ethnicities. And being a woman on top, she, she's... This is the epitome of what a Jew would think of as someone who would be unclean. This is the epitome. This picture is the epitome of uncleanness. And yet here Jesus is getting ready to interact with her. Now, okay, again, I, I keep referencing Matthew's account because he gives us a few more details. 
In Matthew's account, it says that whenever she went up to, to Jesus, he didn't say a word. She's pleading for help. She's asking for him to heal her demon-oppressed daughter. He's silent. And then it says that the, that the, the disciples speak up. She's a, a evidently very persistent. The disciples speak up and say, this is, this is how compassionate they were. Send her away, for she is crying out after us. <laughs> okay, we're, we're reading this through our cultural lens. That's harsh. Why are they being so harsh to this woman who is begging for help for her daughter? Now, again, we see everything through our 21st century American ears. This is, but, but what, we, what we need to understand is that in their culture and in that time, to interact with a Gentile woman in a pagan land, that was a no-no. You do not, that was so inappropriate. You absolutely would not, as a Jewish male, interact with a, with a Gentile woman in a Gentile land. You, that, that is absolutely not, this is an incredibly awkward moment to even read about as a first century Jew, Jewish person reading the Gospel of Mark. This is an incredibly awkward moment. What are they going to do? The dynamics of this moment, this interaction, this, this Gentile woman interacting with Jesus, the dynamics would make you so uncomfortable as you read it. And so it made perfect sense for Jesus to not say anything at first, and it made even more sense for the, for the disciples to say, hey, listen, you need to shoo her away, because this is not okay, this is not, a, not acceptable. So why? why? Why was Jesus hesitant to speak to her? Why, did, why were they seemingly harsh to her? Well, there's a lot of cultural things going on here, but, but again, I want to caution us that we don't taint the reading of God's word with our cultural lens. So at this point, we can, we, can, we can choose to assume the absolute worst in Jesus. We can sit here and think, aha, he's misogynistic and he's racist. This is proof that Jesus was misogynistic and racist. So we can close the door on Jesus, wipe our hands and move, on, move along in life. Here's proof of it right here. You can, you can assume the absolute worst. Or, and this is the option I would prefer, <laughs> If you're a believer, if Jesus is your savior, if he is your king, you can, you can assume the absolute best in Jesus. You, you can, we can assume the absolute best in him, in him and we can, we can think through this. You know, that's why we try to put those labels on people as quickly as we can, is because people don't like to think in our culture. And our, one of our biggest problems we have in our society today is that we want to put a political label or, or whatever label we can possibly put on on someone we want to put it on them as as quickly as we can so that we can categorize them and not have to critically think about what they have to say or who they are and so the quicker we can label someone as misogynistic or racist or whatever we can write them off and we can move on to other things but if you want to have thoughtful discussion and thoughtful you know thoughts <laughs> it'll take your time uh, I, it's a lot more productive, I feel like. Um, and so if we're assuming the absolute best in Jesus, I think we can think this way. Jesus lived in a time that was incredibly misogynistic. Absolutely it was. Jesus lived in a culture that was incredibly racist. Jews were very racist. The, the scripture does not 
pulled back on that. I mean, ethnicity was a really big deal, and, and people would come to hard conclusions about you based on your ethnicity. That happens today, but it is nothing like what it was back then. I mean, based on what I, I study about that culture in that time, ethnicity, it played a huge role in how people were thought of. Jesus existed in a very misogynistic and very racist culture and time, but I think sometimes he was silent, at least at first, because he let these things play out slowly. Because these miracles are meant to teach us something. These moments are meant to teach us something. And I think Jesus is teaching us about the nature of his kingdom. He's teaching us about the kingdom that he is ushering in and the kingdom that we are to be a part of. And so he's teaching something very shocking in this miracle and in this interaction that these cultural lines in the sand that people had in that day and still have in, in this day, he gets rid of those cultural lines and his borders expand past those uh, expectations and his kingdom is something new. It's something different. Well, let's keep reading here with that in mind in verses 27 and 28. <laughs> and this is, talk about shocking. Listen to this uh, statement by Jesus. And he said to her, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, yes, Lord, Yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Did Jesus just call her a dog? How are you going to get around that? Right, we're going to assume the worst. We're going to assume the best. There, there's probably no way around us reading this and not being offended in some way. Let's just admit that out loud. This is offensive to our ears. But what is happening here with this statement? What is Jesus? This, this woman is begging for help, and he says to her, It's not right. It's not right. I, I, the, the children need fed first, and then, then the dogs get scraps. Well, I, I, is, he, is he referring to her, her as a dog in a good way? We do that sometimes in our culture. What's up, dog? Oh, you dog. We can do that, but that's not what's going on here, obviously, right? But culturally, how you view dogs helps us understand what's happening in this text. Now, again... How, how, how do we view dogs here? Uh, even how we view dogs in American culture versus other cultures varies. Like, we, we view dogs practically as people. And I'm surprised some of us don't have our dog with us right now because they're like little people that live in our house. Other cultures, not so much. I, I, I noticed this first whenever I, I would travel back and forth to Honduras every year to do mission trips there. And getting to know Honduran culture over the course of a decade was fascinating. And I just, I love interacting with people, especially with Christians from other cultures, because I love to find that common ground. And I, I re, I'm always really curious how they understand the gospel and how their faith plays out in their cultural environment. It, it, it's just something that's always been fascinating to me. So I always ask a lot of questions uh, because I, I, I want to see, I want to know. But even like dogs and things in Honduras, how people interacted with dogs in Honduras was just way different than how people interact with dogs here. Like in Honduras, when you had, like dogs were just dogs. They were generally friendly scavengers that lived around your, your house. That's what a dog is in, in Honduras. And so, you know, dogs in Honduras, they're, they're not getting rawhide bones. They don't get a stocking for Christmas. 
right? None of that's taking place for the dogs in Honduras. Uh, they're just dogs. If you, they're not getting premium dog food. Whatever's left over, they eat the trash. So you can always see their rib cage, and they're just kind of laying in the ditch or outside of the house, and they're, they're just dogs. One, one really funny interaction that I had when, I, when this really hit me about the difference in how people view dogs there. There was a, a lady who was a missionary there for years and years and years, and she was getting ready to leave the mission field. But one of the funny things about her time there is as soon as she got to Honduras, she found one, of, she loved dogs. She found this scrappy dog on the side of the road walking around, because that's what dogs do. They're just randomly walking around on the side of the road. She took it home, and that became her pet. And so she treated that Honduran dog like we would in America. She bought it the best dog food. She'd give it the best snacks. This dog slept with her in bed every night. She was widowed, and, and this dog was like her, her best friend in life, literally. And so this dog would follow her around when she would go do mission work in, in the villages and things like that. The dog would always come with her. And it turned, it looked like a dog here. It, they, she took a, a, a mutt on the side of the road with its ribs exposed and turned it into a fat, worthless, lazy dog, like what we like. And so when people in Honduran culture would see her and this dog, they would always laugh at her. It was funny. They're <laughs> like, what? You, you stupid American, you're feeding your dog. <laughs> like, it, was, it was comical to them to see a fat dog and so anyone who saw her dog, it was like a spectacle. It was a big deal. Look at how fat. They've never seen a fat dog before. They've never seen a person take their dog in their house and, and let that dog sit on their furniture and sleep with them in bed. That just, what? It's a dog. Well, this dog, towards the end of her time there, it was going blind. It was covered in tumors. It was like, it, it looked terrible. It just had gotten so old. And she just would not put this dog down. And, and so her time had come to where it was time to go back to America, and her, her mission work there had, had come to an end, and she just would not put this dog down, and she, she left it in, in the care of some of her Honduran friends and said, would you promise me you'll just take care of my dog while I'm gone? She gave them money to take care of the dog and things like, here's the best dog food, all that stuff. And they're like, oh, yeah, sure, yeah, we'll take care of your dog. She got on the plane. Before she, the plane even landed, they threw that dog in a pit and killed it. <laughs> It's shocking, right? Look at, listen, the, the gasp. That's exactly what I wanted when I told that story. Man, I nailed it. That's exactly what I wanted. We hear that, and to our American ears, you killed that fat old dog? You didn't put it on an IV and take it to the hospital and sit by its side until it died? It's a person. No, they took that dog, they literally had a pit where they threw trash in there, and they, and they lit the trash on fire. It was a fiery pit. They're like, oh, yeah, took care of your dog. <laughs> and they loved that woman and everything. But to them, that was just a dog. It, it made no sense whatsoever to take care of that dog when it was in such bad condition. Now, again, to our ears, that sounds cruel. And so if their culture is guilty of being cruel to dogs, our culture is guilty of being too loving to dogs, aren't we? We can go to We Love Pets today. We Love Pets, first of all. That's a name of a store here. And when you go in there, you could buy a dog stroller if you wanted to. Because that's how ridiculous our culture is. You can buy heart-shaped rawhide bones. You can buy, you know, what are the, snossages. They don't even know, they don't know what snossages is down there in Honduras. 
But it's ridiculous, right? Even when I take my dog to the vet and what my vet wants to do to my dog and what I want to do to my dog are way two different things. I'm like, nah, bare minimum, right? And I love dogs. But even us, within our culture, we have different expectations of dogs. So some of you won't let dogs in your house, but you love dogs. You just don't let them in your house. I let my dog in my house, but I don't let it on the furniture. Some of you let it on the furniture. So we all, we all, we all practice different dog etiquette, even in our households. When we, now, my dog is, is, you talk about a fat, lazy, worthless dog, and she's the neediest dog in the whole world. So when you come to Fireside Chat, she'll be leaning on you the entire time, wanting attention. So, but Butter, though, when it comes to eating, uh, we don't let, I don't let my dogs beg for food at the dinner table. Now, when you're sitting by the fireside chat, I can't promise you what's going to happen out there. She'll be begging like crazy. But, but in the house, when we're eating dinner, as we did last night, around the table, Butter knows she can't even be within sight. Now, she's, she's older now. She knows the rules. When we sit down at the dinner table, she literally gets up, goes down the hallway, and she'll kind of sit halfway in a bedroom with, like, one eyeball, poking out just around the corner and she'll act like she's not really paying attention to what's going on in the dining room even because she knows she's not supposed to be in there but she's waiting for us to get finished because that's when the good stuff happens that's when she has access to scraps that's why she is obese it's because when we get done you know if we if if we got stuff left on the the plate we can't put it in the dishwasher yet we scrape it into her bowl and that's like oh that's when the clouds open and the angels sing to my dog but she knows she can't be in there that's just how how it works and then she'll go spot mop the the dining room (laughs) when we're done why do I bring all this up because the differences that exist in Honduran culture and American culture with dogs also kind of existed in Jewish culture and Gentile culture in Jesus day to a Jew a dog was a dog, just the generally friendly scavenger that would hang out in the neighborhood. To a Gentile, especially a Syrophoenician, they had pets. Jews didn't have pets. Syrophoenicians, absolutely they have pets. They love pets. We love pets. They had a store called We Love Pets in Sidon. Probably. Maybe. But you can actually see this in the text, right? Whenever Jesus is interacting with her, Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the bread and throw it to the dogs outside where they live. That's where dogs go. And her rebuttal is what? Yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. She's familiar with pets. The dogs would be hanging out under the dinner table when you ate in Syrophoenician culture. Here's the point. She, she's not being called a dog to degrade her or to minimize her value or worth in any way. The point of Jesus' illustration is that she would understand the order of salvation in redemptive history. It's not their turn yet. Jesus, when he came, he said, my mission is to the Jews. I am to come to the Jewish people, and his own did not accept him, right? He came to the Jewish people to start his mission. That's where his mission was to be carried out in Israel amongst the Jews. And that, again, makes sense because Jews were the one with the prophecy that anticipated a coming Messiah. They were the ones equipped with the prophecies to be able to identify the Messiah when he arrived. And so Jesus is not saying, 
you don't have access to salvation and redemptive history. It's that there's an order. It's to the Jews first, and then it will expand to the Gentiles. He's not saying you don't get to eat. He's saying you get to eat next. This is going to play out in time, in real time here. And his mission is to the Jews first and then the Gentiles. As a matter of fact, when you read in the New Testament epistles, Paul goes to great lengths to make sure we understand everyone is of the same value and worth regardless of your ethnicity, regardless of your gender. What does he say in Galatians 28 through 29? There is neither Jew nor Greek. Greek was another way to just say Gentile in that time. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. And so this had nothing to do with slamming her dignity or anything like that. That's our cultural lens tainting what we're reading here. Jesus is teaching that there was an order that was taking place here. His mission was to the Jewish people. He is going to redeem his creation. It just starts with the Jews. But eventually it's going to expand to everyone. Here we are, all the dogs, a part of the table because of Christ. Now, Jesus did teach this explicitly, just not here. So if you go to John chapter 10, he actually fleshes this out in great detail, if you, if you uh, look in John chapter 10, 14 through 16, he says it this way. He says, this is when he says, this is one of the great I am statements. He says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the father knows me, I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. Who are the sheep? He says in verse 16. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also. They will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and there will be one shepherd. Jesus taught this very explicitly that this Syrophoenician woman was just from a different fold. Because Jesus came to redeem not just the Jews, but also the Gentiles. And so this woman recognized Jesus as her salvation as her rescue. That's what we're meant to see as readers in the Gospel of Mark. She recognized Jesus. She, she recognized him by, by what he said. She wasn't offended by what he said. She was just happy, happy to be getting the scraps, happy to be in line. And what does Jesus say? Well, in Matthew, he describes her faith. Again, we don't see this line in Mark, but we see it in Matthew. He describes her faith as great. He's blown away. He's impressed her rebuttal that bests him in the moment is shocking enough. But he sees her come back and says, wow, I am so impressed by your faith. Oh, woman of great faith. He commends her. Don't you want to have great faith? Well, there's two aspects of her faith that make it so great. The first one is this, it's humility. Again, she wasn't offended by what he said. It didn't seem to bother her at all. She seemed to take the posture, great, I'll, I'll wait for the scraps. You came to the Jew first, great. I'll, I'll, I'm here to be in line last. Happy to be in line. I still get to be in line? I still get fed? Awesome. I'll take any place in the line. Isn't that exactly what a believer is supposed to think? Remember, remember this is what Jesus taught. The first shall be last 
the last will be first. That happens in Matthew as well. Was she there? Did she hear, hear him say that? Is that why she's happy? She was humble. Jesus, when he would preach on the Sermon on the Mount, here's what he did not say on the Sermon on the Mount. He didn't say, blessed are the entitled, for theirs are the kingdom of heaven. No, he said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This lady was poor in spirit. She was humble. Happy to be in the back of the line, Jesus. Thank you. Her display was greatly, her display of faith was greatly rewarded. You see here in verses 29 and 30, it says, And he said to her for this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. The other true mark of great faith is faith that is persistent. That's what great faith looks like. We don't like that. That sounds good, but we don't like that. If, if you're aspiring to have great faith, we would rather not be so persistent. Because if we're persistent in these moments in which we want things, that means we've got to wait. We're not getting what we want. We're, we have to be persistent. We don't like that. We get frustrated in those moments. It, it does our heart good to go back and read the, the parable uh, of the, the widow and the unjust judge. That's, in, that's a great complimentary text to this. If you want a homework text to study today, Later in personal devotion time, Luke 18, 1 through 8, it teaches us that great faith is faith that's persistent. We're taught that over and over and over in Scripture. You want great faith, you, you have persistent faith. Exercise your faith in this way. If it's great, it looks like this. Now, we're, we aren't taught to have persistent faith. It's, it's, it's not like, let me, let me phrase it this way. When we say have persistent faith, it's not like God is reluctant to answer our prayers and that we have to lure him or convince him. What persistent faith does for us, or persistence whenever we're desiring something and not getting it yet, what that does is persistent pleading with God, it expresses a greater and greater dependence upon God. And the greater the dependence that we have on God, the greater our faith is. And so persistence is so good for us we're supposed to be persistent in faith because it helps our faith grow. It expresses a great dependence upon God. That's what great faith is. And so today, as we go into communion, you know, maybe we go with this posture of humility and posture of persistence. We're getting crumbs today. Every Sunday, we get crumbs. And we, just scraps falling from the table. Salvation came to the Jews and Christ's kingdom has been expanding all over this globe. And here we are just collecting the scraps as Gentiles. But we get a seat at the table. We're getting fed. This is how we're nourished spiritually. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's take that, that posture of persistence and humility into this time of communion as we thank God for sending his son, not just for the Jews, but for us as well. That we can be righteous before God and that our sins can be atoned before God, and we can be clean before God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this moment, this miraculous moment in which you healed the Syrophoenician woman's daughter. We thank you, Lord, for just being able to see what great faith looks like, 
because each and every one of us in here, if we're being brutally honest, we go through seasons in which our faith just doesn't feel that great. It doesn't, it doesn't feel good. Maybe it doesn't even feel like it's there sometimes. And Lord, we, we read moments like this and it's a, it's a shot in the arm or maybe a just slap in the face. We, we misconstrue things so often and we need corrected by your word. We're to take this humble posture with you, Lord, this persistent posture in our pursuit of you, Lord. Thank you so much that you graciously teach us this through these moments that would have been so shocking to people on that day. But Lord, they're shocking to us still today. But Lord, the most shocking thing of all is that you would love us despite of what comes out of us. It's shocking that, Lord, all of the, the sin in this world that comes out of us, all of the defilement, Lord, we're, it's at the core of our being. But you love us anyway. It's incredible. I just, it is hard to believe that you would love us anyway. But it's the gospel of Jesus Christ that explains to us how. And if we didn't know how, we would never believe it. It's that you give us righteousness and that you give us cleanness. You make us clean. That's how we're clean. Father, help us to remember that as we walk into communion together today. And it's in your name, Jesus, we pray.